Alrighty, folks. First of all, obviously, welcome to the, the venture funding panel. Got a uh, great group of folks here. We've done a little prep too, so we've hopefully we'll be covering what you uh, what you need today. By background, my name is Jeff Yasud. I'm the CEO and founder of Feed Media, which houses Blip FM, which some of you may know, Fuzz.com, as well as a new product called Feed FM, which is in the B2B space, empowering music app developers essentially to to be able to use content and acoustic fingerprint and other things like that to build their apps. You know, by by background, I've sat on both sides of the table, both as a VC and as a startup entrepreneur, and I can tell you with utmost conviction that raising capital is hard. Raising capital is very, very hard. And if you add music to the mix, it gets even tougher. Anecdotally, I think this is a good illustration as to how tough it really can be. A couple years ago, Larry and I did a panel together on venture venture funding. Brian Ziska had asked me to do it, and I went into the panel pretty confident. I had a, a term sheet. I was, you know, in due diligence already. The final deal docs were being drafted, and I kid you not, 15 minutes before I hopped on the panel, I got a text from the lead VC saying, "We're pulling out." with the only rationale being music is a tough space, we're not quite ready to commit. And obviously that was a what the flock moment for me, but I came up here to the panel with Larry and others, And but it, it's super hard. And and I think as, as entrepreneurs, it's very, very important to be clever, particularly about how you think to build your business. I'm convinced that a lot of entrepreneurs still don't truly understand what it means to raise capital. And most think it means to raise money. But it's not. I think there's a lot of ways that you can push your business forward without raising money. Human capital, for example, getting others to believe in your dream, to actually invest the time or maybe work on sweat equity. Legal fees. I've had my lawyers invest their fees in the company. Even even my web service provider invested in us so we don't have any out-of-pocket server costs. Most importantly, though, probably the, the best non-dilutive financing that you could ever get is something called revenues. And it's, it's really important, I think, gone are the days where you can, I, I, at least in my view, where you can have some rough idea of, of how to make money. I think it's very important that entrepreneurs start that process with a real thesis in mind. So I guess for starters, you know, this is this is this panel's for you guys. You should think of, of this as 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 consulting for you. And so just by a show of hands, I'm curious how many folks out there are are entrepreneurs looking to raise capital. Okay. Wow. So most of the folks here. And then just keep your hands up. How many of you guys are music companies looking to raise capital? Okay. So pretty much most. So I, I think it makes sense, and we talked about this a little bit before today. We're, we'll really try to gear our, our take on what's it like raising capital, what are the pitfalls, what are the things to be thinking about, what are the, some of the structures you should be considering looking to take this next major step with your business. So with that, what I'll do is ask the panelists to actually go down and introduce themselves, a great group of folks with deep experience in venture financing, and uh, I think they'd be able to provide a lot of insights as to better, as to help you guys improve running your businesses. So Carrie, maybe you can start it off. Sure. 
So Carrie Walsh, I'm a managing director with Silicon Valley Bank. I lead a really unique team at the bank that is in charge of working with all the pre-seed through Series B companies and really identifying best of breed innovation in the market. And once we do that and their clients, then my team really uniquely leverages the bank's deep relationships in the market in, the, in ways that will really help our clients grow. We connect the dots when our clients are fundraising. We do a lot to educate you on execution and uh, how to approach the market. And so we do on top of the support with the fundraising and the connecting of the dots to corporates, to angels, to organized angel groups, and to institutionals, we're really also about you know, doing these very unique proprietary events that drive engagement in really unique ways so that you can have the, the conversations with these investors and with these peers that will lead to some meaningful outcomes. So that's kind of what my team is all about. We're sector-driven. We have these resources across the U.S., and there is absolutely no other banking provider out there that does this. So I think it's really demonstrates Silicon Valley Bank's deep commitment to early stage entrepreneurs. Adam. Hey, everybody. My name is Adam Dagelli. I actually work at an early stage venture fund, True Ventures. Our focus is kind of that first round of institutional capital behind small teams, not unlike many of you, where it's kind of the two or three early founders, big ideas about markets, and just need a little bit of capital to test early assumptions. Some notable investments, companies like Fitbit, which is a, a pedometer company, companies like Brightworld and uh, WordPress.com. In music specifically, we're investors in DJZ, Bandcamp, Soundtracking, and Tastemaker X. So we actually do have some music investments as well. And then for me personally, prior to True, I actually have a unique background where I ran a small indie record label in Florida and also as part of a Scott Punk band. So I've actually had the benefit of seeing all parts of the music business, which stories later. Uh-huh. And what was the name of the band, by the way? And the <laughs> URL, by the way. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> actually, I'll tell you. The band was actually called Scuff Shoes, which in like ska pat fashion, we spelled with a K and an apostrophe D. <laughs> and there are photos. There's one photo still on the web, and my hair is much, much longer. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks. Larry. Okay. So I had a gig yesterday, and I played with three bands fun. at a community music festival. Ooh, so fun. And I do have some pictures. My claim of him is I have hair in some of those old pictures. <laughs> So anyway, I'm, a, I'm a drummer, and I'm a part of uh, Walden Venture Capital. We're based in San Francisco. We call our strategy Sprout Stage Investing. So we don't want to do concepts. We want you to have your product or your technology baked so I can actually see it with my eyes. So it really starts with the demo to make sure that you've captured kind of that initial product magic in whatever your core technology and product is. You don't need to have revenue, you don't even need to have adoption, but you do need to have that killer demo to to really start the conversation. So the best way to actually begin with me is by getting the product in front of me. If you can show it to me, the best is if you can try to buttonhole me here and give me a a one or two minute demo or send me a link to that. that's, that's my preference. I don't really like hearing about the concepts as much as just witnessing it with my eyes. We are very similar to True in terms of our stage. We're typically first institutional money in, and we invest specifically in digital media and cloud services. So we're actually a sector-focused fund, and digital media is, is really our core. And the music companies, or kind of music-related that I'm involved with are Pandora, SoundHound, 
Boombotics, Bandpage, Swarm FM, Lyric Find. I think that's it. And other interesting ones coming as well. One of the things I think is really notable is a lot are really music-related, and music is such a great passion center for people. There's so much value they get in their lives from music, but the actual selling of music is typically a very small part of the action or very ancillary. I haven't done anywhere that's kind of the primary source of revenue. And that, that's turned out to be a difficult business, you know, with very difficult licensing terms. So if you've got licensing or other things, I'm really just looking for that win-win deal for whatever it is uh, you're doing. Awesome. All right, so let's take a deeper dive. And the first question, obviously, most entrepreneurs have is, how the hell do I get financed? And what are the key ingredients that investors typically look for? So maybe, you know, Larry just mentioned he, he likes to see the product. He wants to see the demo, doesn't care about the vision as much at the outset. Show me what you got. Adam, maybe you can expand a little bit on that in terms of talking about some of the initial criteria that you look at when you consider a potential investment. So to start, I just want to say raising money is really hard. Like I know here in the music, like everyone here is like, it's really hard to raise money for music. It's actually really hard to raise money for any idea. So taking a step to kind of what we look for as a For us, we're big people investors. I think the biggest criteria we like to talk about is what unfair advantages, which is why is this individual the one who's going to win in a market? Because I think day one, you know, you look at a product and you're not really investing in the product or the data coming off the product because honestly, it's going to be really bad for a while. And it should be really bad because it's new and you're learning and you're learning with customers. And so for us, we like to meet the person, understand their story, like why and why this is the business they're going to go run and why their background experience makes them kind of the right person to win in this market. You know, some great examples would be we're investors in a company called 3D Robotics. And the founder is former editor-in-chief of Wired, Chris Anderson. He ran this small open source community online around building drones. And for about five years, he was kind of, while he was editor-in-chief of Wired, he like ran this small community. And then one day he woke up and he was doing millions of dollars in revenue based on products they had built within the community. And he was like, well, I've been doing this now for the past, you know, five years as a, kind of a hobby, seeing real consumer traction. And, you know, he's uniquely suited to go out and kind of address uh, the issues in kind of the media market with how the perception of drones is. And so that's a great example of how we think about it. And so the advice I would always give is start building relationships early. Every VC likes to look at different things. Go and find investors who invest in your category and ask them for advice and start asking them for advice very, very early on. And that over, you know, a course of a year, as you're starting to build that relationship, that's how you kind of then eventually turn that into raising money. Got it. So relationships and people. So Kerry, you, you oftentimes, you had mentioned that you work with a lot of companies actually prior to even talking to the VCs. So what sort of advice do you give them in terms of the pitch and how they, how they present themselves you know, to maximize the outcome of that initial, that initial meeting? At the stage that we uh, are seeing companies, uh, the, the pre-seed in particular, I think one of the, the biggest challenges is really getting the message succinct and clear. You, know, you need to be able, in these conversations and these opportunities that you have with investors, whether it's at conferences like this or one-on-one meetings or you know, over the phone uh, conference calls, to really concisely and very quickly get your idea and your message aclo- across. And the one thing that we see at the pre-seed level is a lot of 
I think, innovation, but a lack of clarity on the messaging. So you need to spend, I think, a fair amount of time getting that right, not only verbally and practicing that. If you've got 30 seconds in this type of environment today to make a first impression, guess what? You need to nail it the first time because the objective from that interaction should be, gee, not all are they going to invest in me, but the or do I get a meeting, you know? Am I going to have a meeting with this investor where I can then sit down and, again, in a very kind of organized, strategic way, uh, talk about, right, the solution that I'm bringing to the table? So I think that really is one thing that, in particular, uh, sticks out in my head. I think it really is about making sure that your executive summary and your deck are lean and mean. You know, you don't need a million slides, but you don't you don't want to have too few as well. You really need to kind of stick to a really tight number, uh, and it needs to really very clearly uh, speak to what you're trying to bring to the market. These are the things I think that really stick out the most. And then also, too, talking about the team, you know, making sure that you're articulating the strength of the team that you bring to the table. This is one the largest risk that investors at the early stage are trying to mitigate is the risk associated with the founding team, right? So the more that they can feel comfortable as an investing team or as an individual that you can do the job and get it done, the more likely you are to get what you want, which is an investment. That's, that's actually a key part of the reason that I really want to see that sprout happening mm -hmm. because I'm really seeking to actively avoid meetings. I mean, I think we all are. I mean, nothing's worse than being, you know, stuck in a meeting that you really don't want to be in. You start questioning your resistance. You start thinking about other things. <laughs> so I think we could all do a lot better spending a lot less time in meetings and you know you really don't want to waste your valuable time stuck in a meeting you know with somebody that ultimately isn't going to invest anyway so for me that the witnessing of the product is a way to just form a judgment because i find the descriptions of it are just so difficult for a lot of these it just sounds like this cloud of buzzwords it's like the same hailstorm of words you know you've heard time and time again and you really don't know what's different, but when you actually see it and you're like, oh, all right, that's clear. The other thing is some people are really good at making these things, but actually particularly bad at articulating them. And there's a difference between uh, the product magic and necessarily bringing it to market. So that's another thing sometimes is, you know, can you figure out how to bring something else uh, to the business? Because some people are just very inarticulate you know, you're 20 minutes into a meeting and literally the question in your mind is like, what is it that you do? And, That's you know, right. you try to ask it and, but, you know, then another 20 minutes goes by. And I think there's, you know, an important point here too is that, right, there are a slew of uh, incubators and accelerators out there that then bring to the table, you know, uh, an opportunity to have mentors and uh, specific programs that really guide early stage entrepreneurs through this process. So for those of you, and it's the vast majority, that aren't in these programs, guess what? You're up against people that have been trained, that have been conditioned, that have been coached. And so you need to bring your A game. You need to, you know, practice with each other, practice with your your friends, practice with your family, but get it right before you start pitching, even at the earliest stages. It really will make a huge difference. Yeah. Context is super important. Larry just said it like, we don't really like to take meetings. <laughs> it's good to take them when they're appropriate. And so the context of how you meet someone is so hugely important to how we start to perceive you. And so I know that it's relatively easy to get to me. My email is public. I write about things on my blog. We have a ton of founders who are in the market who are great access points for us, who are, you know, in theory, relevant to your space and market. 
don't walk up to me at a conference and try and like chase me down and explain your idea. Not because I won't talk to you about it, but because that sets up the wrong relationship dynamics to start. Go and take the time to figure out a way to get introduced to me by someone we know in common via LinkedIn or something like that. That's how, you know, if a founder I work with who says, hey, this is an awesome person, you should meet them. Like that makes me move really quickly. Jules is somewhere here in the room from Audience FM. He's the AngelPad incubator right now, and so he had a direct access point to us through that. Um, but he went out of his way to find a founder who I worked with in music to say, hey, this is someone who's really interesting. And so for me, I can then, I'll move other things around on my schedule to make sure I meet with him and prioritize what he's working on. Yeah, Adam raises an excellent point, and uh, I, I spent some time with a buddy of mine at, uh, at CRV, a guy named Sargor, so I'm giving him full credit for this, but uh, I asked him, what are the best intros that you get as a VC? Um, so we started with the worst intros that you get, and this is really important from the perspective of how the hell do I get in here? Um, the worst intros are a combination of cold calls, because you're not... Uh, as resourceful enough to get to me through someone I trust or someone I know. So that's a non-starter. But the absolute worst is probably another investor that has passed on the deal that says, oh, company X isn't right for me for whatever reason, but it's right for you, so you should take this meeting. That's usually a, a non-starter. Um, some of the better intros, as we discussed, are people that are either advisors of the company uh, or investors already in the company that are, are looking to, to build out the syndicate. Um, in other words, they're already kind of in the boat. Um, you know, they have a vested interest. Um, they want to see this entrepreneur successful. Um, but Sar, one of the things he said in terms of the best entrepreneurs, uh, best introduction, which Adam just mentioned, is another entrepreneur that they like, ideally somebody that's already a portfolio company, that has no interest whatsoever in the company. And it's a person that typically has a, a, a deep a deep love for the partner saying, hey, I want you to be successful. I want to introduce you to an entrepreneur that I think is going to, is going to do great things. And quite honestly, I think you should fund them. Mm -hmm. um, and now, so obviously from an entrepreneurial perspective, that means you got to do your homework, check out the portfolio companies. Don't go straight to the partner to try to get that meeting. Maybe try going to, the, to one of the founders of, of one of the portfolio companies, the CEO, build a relationship with that individual and get that warm introduction may actually do better than going to the decision maker. It's a bit counterintuitive, but oftentimes this has yielded pretty good results. Um, so let's, let's now move to kind of a structural uh, aspect um, of the discussion, which is there is obviously choice for entrepreneurs when they're looking to raise money. Right. There are different types of investment vehicles now. There are different types of investors. Recently, um, I'd, I'd probably, some may argue that they've been around forever, but there's certainly been a lot more institutionalized. Uh, th this new group of, of investors has, has certainly kind of sprouted out of nowhere, in my, in my view. Um, and, and the term for these guys are either micro VCs or seed funds, um, guys that focus 100% on doing very, very early stage concept, meaning PowerPoint, vaporware, whatever, very, very early stage uh, uh, companies versus, versus going to the more established Sand Hill Road VCs. Um, Larry, since you've been, been investing in the space for, for a long time, I mean, what's your take on sort of the micro VC world versus going to the venture, uh, venture guys? Who should the entrepreneur sort of be targeting at the outset in your view now? Sure. So the, the high-level comment 
is that I think you should raise as little money as possible to make as much progress as early as possible as you can. And that's because as you raise capital, there is kind of this ratio of, you know, it's almost like a miles per gallon thing. It's how much progress have you made per dollar. And as you're trying to figure things out, if you've burned a ton of money, then the investor's thinking, hmm, you've, you've burned through a lot of money already. Why isn't it going to be just the same for whatever money that I'm giving you? So while you're figuring things out, being super lean is key. That also helps you maneuver more. So I think for your first capital, um, probably the most important thing is actually just to get some. And I think the, the friends and family route is probably the most typical for your first uh, few hundred K. Just kind of whoever you can get it from. But obviously, you want to get it from the most relevant people that you can along the way. Uh, there's, I think, 70,000 angel deals being done a year. That's just a huge number of companies. Uh, once that money is burned through, those angel investors tend to say, what? You're, you need more money for me? I didn't really sign up for that. That's not what they do. So to, to make great progress on that money so you can start to come uh, and get institutional money from like a True or from from a Walden, uh, that's one route. Or there's also these um, smaller institutional uh, angel funds or seed funds, and they can provide a lot more value than typical angels, but uh, and they can help you get to that next stage as well. But I think you just always want to take as little money as you can initially and get it from the best possible people. And the more institutional the money, I think the better off uh, you're going to be. So they're filling a really important part of the ecosystem, and uh, you know that's a huge part of our deal flow. All these funds and and all this angel investing. So from my perspective, the more of that that's going on, you know, the the more seeds that are planted, you know, the more that can ultimately sprout. So I think from Silicon Valley Bank's perspective, we, there are more sources of capital out there for seed entre stage entre entrepreneurs than ever. So you've got angels, you've got organized angel groups, of which there are you know over 8,000 individual angels and over close to 400 organized angel groups in the U.S. alone. Uh, you've got um, family uh, family office. Uh, sources, which are just high net worth uh, individuals, trusts that are investing now in the space. You've got corporates that are doing a, a handful of seed stage funds and really structuring themselves as corporate venture funds that are now back in the game for uh, the 2.0 version of what we're seeing in the market. And then you have the, seed, the institutionals that are, you know, either have a dedicated focus on the seed stage or have stealth teams that have the ability uh, to invest anywhere from 250 to a million in a week's time uh, on an individual partner basis. So the good news for seed stage entrepreneurs is that you have more options than ever. Um, but I do think that it kind of leads to a bit of a barbell in the market where you have a lot of money up front and a lot of money on the back end, but it's lean and mean in the, in the middle for the series A and B. Now, that's not different from anything that we've seen historically, but it leads to this whole discussion of is there a series A crunch? And I think that will be one of the things that we talk about. But the fact of the matter is, is you're going to feel it harder and it's going to seem more intense because 
because you have more competition to go up against in the market, right? So you're going to have more people that are getting funded and more attrition that comes when it's time to raise that series A and B. And the other point to go back to in terms of what to be thinking of is, you know, be making the connections and networking and preparing yourself for your seed round, but also at the same time, be thinking forward. Who do you need to be talking to? Who do you need to be building relationships with for your series A? Because you need to start laying that groundwork now. You need to start demonstrating to those investors that you do know how to iterate and you do know how to create a rapport with them uh, because they're, they will be looking for that. And it'll be important as you try to differentiate yourself in the market when it comes time to be the one that gets that series A money. I, I think that that's an excellent point, building a, a long-term relationship with the next potential investor. I mean, a, as an entrepreneur, I am the master of rejection. I, I can't tell you how many times I've been rejected from from a financing meeting. In fact, um, you know, you, you kind of look at the broader the broader statistics and, you know, look, nine out of ten startups fail, right? So um, in some ways you can think about, you know, out of every 10 meetings you, you take, nine of them will end up in no's. And sometimes the best meetings are the meetings that just get you to the next meeting. Having said that, um, some, many of my investors actually said no to me the first time. And to Kerry's point, which I think is, is very, very important, is don't let that get you down. I think part of it is you are building a long-term relationship. Uh, a lot of these investors ask one basic question at the outset, which is, do I like this entrepreneur? Do I want to be in the trenches with this person? And the idea may not be fully baked at the outset. Uh, the, the revenue model may not be there quite yet. The team may not be completely full, but showing progress over time, I think, is, is super important. Um, so, so Adam, just just a little bit in terms of, of, of structure, um, you know, a lot of the que a, a question that I get frequently from entrepreneurs is, okay, so I'm, I'm trying to figure out about the how to actually structure this financing. Do I do a convert note? Um, and if you guys don't know what a convert note is, uh, Adam will go into that. Or do I try to just go for a priced round? So, how should an entrepreneur actually be thinking about? Uh, structuring uh, their first financing. Um, so for context, just because my answers are going to be colored in a specific direction, um, our funds, we've been around since 2006. All our funds are roughly $200 million. We now have three funds under management. Um, our first check is anywhere from kind of 500K to $2.5 million. Um, so we played in kind of the seed and early A level. Um, our fund has been very, very public about our dislike of convertible notes. Um, I think there's a bunch of reasons for that, which I'm happy to dive into. Oh, so for context, convertible notes are um, debt instruments that, uh, that uh, you can raise money under. Um, they usually convert into the next priced equity round at a discount or a cap, so at a set valuation or at a discount to the valuation of the next round, um, versus raising a priced round, which is you buy equity at a given price today. Um, so our fund's been very... Um, publicly against convertible notes. Um, for context, when we started True, the idea behind True is actually alignment. So it's all around aligning a bike wheel. And so um, the reason we love price rounds is like day one, we say, um, founder, we believe in you. We want to go build something great together. We're going to set the price. We're all going to own something together. And then day one, our incentives are all aligned. And so we only make money when you make money, and we actually want to go grow the pie together. Um, convertible debt's kind of weird where it's like, hey, I'm going to cap your valuation today at a certain price. And then um, at some other point down the road, we'll set a new price for it. But I might get this price set today. But it might also go down. Um, and so though 
you won't see it publicly. Like um, the investors and in, investors incentives day one are not necessarily to help you grow the pie because if the company does around a lower price than the convertible note, then you get kind of a price discount. So as a founder, like the benefits are speed and cost. Though the reality is, is they'll tell you that it's actually just as quick to do a price round um, within, we can do a price round in two to four weeks. And also at the same point, um, we can do it now for 10 or 15K. And so it behooves you as I think as a founder day one to say, I'm gonna choose someone I wanna go build a long-term company with. We wanna set up the company for long-term success. And so taking a little ex bit of extra time to set the terms um, and actually do a price round uh, is helpful because um, it's a long, long-term game. Yeah, I, I agree with that as well. I think it's very important to be super aligned and uh, the convertible notes just, just really don't allow you to make that happen. Um, also, there's a, a lot of bizarre artificial things that happens, like when somebody sets a cap, all of a sudden that ends up being more like a floor and it makes it harder to raise money. So I think if the notes are very, very small, that ends up being something that it's easy to look through when you convert it in, but when they get too big, all of a sudden you start looking at recaps and other things. And I'll just echo that. Uh, and then like, I think uh, Walden and True, or Larry and I, we both think about like building very long-term companies, like seven to 10 years and building real value. Um, and so taking an extra two to four weeks to go and do a price round versus doing a convertible note we can close at the end of the week. Um, the signaling is weird when you're like, well, I wanna go build a long-term company, but we need to close this week. Like that's, um, that doesn't make as much sense. Yeah, I, th I think it is important to, to emphasize, though, with the convert note structure, um, just to add a slightly different uh, uh, line of thought here, is that convert notes are very, very easy to draft. And, and you can get these things done. Um, you know, they don't necessarily have to have caps, though, though a lot of the investors will require that. Um, you know, when we've done, I, I've personally done convert notes before. Um, it was just a very easy way for us to do a financing. Uh, it, instead of using a discount, we, we added warrants on top of that. Uh, the investors that ended up funding us after were fine, but I think Larry or Adam made, made an excellent point that on the grand scheme of things, the amount that we raised vis-a-vis -a, -vis a convert note was very small compared to the broader uh, financing. So these are just things to think about different options. I, I just want to throw in that one thing we've done, particularly with smaller financings, is do an equity round, but to get that extra leverage to actually get professional debt. So we have a number of companies where we have some debt uh, from Silicon Valley Bank, and that way we're, we're not actually getting the equity dilution, we're getting minor equity dilution, um, but it gives us more cash, uh, more runway, helps the balance sheet out. And again, as equity holders around the table, we're aligned and mm -hmm. they're willing to take that risk. It's expensive money, but the general view around the table, it's a lot less expensive than equity at that point. Right. From 2011 to 2012, we have seen uh, an increase statistically in the number of convertible uh, deals that are out there. And I think a bit of that uh, can be attributable to the incubator effect. I think we see a lot of those deals um, coming from those sources. So uh, it's interesting. In the organized angel community as well, uh, they were hardcore in 2011 for doing just price rounds, and, and in 2012, uh, we did see an uptick. And I can tell you that because I spearheaded an effort at the bank um, where we are doing the first of its kind report, 
uh, tracking organized angel group investment activity called the HALO Report. If you haven't seen it, you can Google it. It's on our website, and uh, it gives a lot of insights to uh, what's happening in the organized angel space. And, and let's actually talk about that a little bit. You mentioned the uh, the incubators. Let's talk about you know the Y Combinators of the world, the you know McClure's 500 startups. Maybe uh, Larry, you can comment a little bit on this. Um, it strikes me there. You kind of look back in history, and there, back in 2000, there was that period where incubators were were super hot. You had companies like CMGI, Internet Cap Capital Group, Safeguard Scientifics, Divine Interventures. If you remember all the way back then, it was a pretty crazy time. And but when the market crashed, incubators were considered a bad word. Just don't go to incubators. It's a disastrous business model, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they were stinkubators and incinerators. <laughs> there you go. Even, even better. That's a new one. That's quotable, too. Um, but uh, within the past couple of years, uh, you know, there's a lot of, of well-known players, Y Combinator, uh, 500 Startups, Betaworks guys out in, in New York um, that tout themselves as being incubators, uh, really taking a deep dive, helping out, providing infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Larry, what's, what's your take? I mean, in, in some ways, do you view uh, what you're doing with the Sprout Stage <coughs> investing as almost being competitive with incubators? Are they a feeder to your fund? How how do you view incubators? I think they're a great feeder. And it's a fundamental difference in model. In one model, you have literally think of it as hundreds of children. And you, you know, if you have a lot of children, they're obviously all competing. And even having one child can take up all your time. But if suddenly you have 10, 20, 30, you know, it's kind of difficult to get you know, time on, on daddy's lap. So, <laughs> so, Lots and of then good when quotes you, today, <laughs> or mommy's lap, uh, and also, you know, it's harder to get, you know, the, the strategic engagement, and then when you come back, it's much harder to, in fact, get the follow-on funds as well, and uh, the model that we're pursuing is just highly curated. So it's really like I'm doing maybe a, a deal or two a year is probably the pace. Mm -hmm. And I'm able to just put a lot of time into those companies on a much deeper level. And then as they mature, as we recruit, they don't need that time anymore. And I'm able to, to also move on. Uh, if you're getting a, a seed investment from somebody, typically, they're giving you the money and they're expecting you to make a ton of progress and make them a lot of money and they can try to be helpful, but it's just a different, different kind of engagement. So I think the more incubators, the more seed activity, the more interesting innovation there is and the more to choose from and work on getting to that next level because there's just not a lot of places to go and get a small Series A. Now, you go to the other side, to the big VCs, somebody who has you know, uh, $700 million fund, I mean, 500 million plus, and their model has to be to write really big checks. I mean, if you want to have 20 companies in a portfolio over time, I mean, you start doing the math, you know, these are huge numbers uh, that need to be written. When they're like, oh, hey, we'll give you 100K, the problem is that doesn't really mean a lot to them. It's, it's sort of a dabble. And they may or may not come back, but it's not really their model fundamentally uh, to support those companies 
on a full-time, you know, real basis. Yeah, I'll just throw in that here's some interesting statistics. So worldwide, there are probably close to 180 seed and uh, um, incubators and accelerators out there. Probably 120, 140 are in the U.S. And in the Bay Area alone, there are probably close to 2025. We see more at Silicon Valley Bank popping up every day. It's very du jour, very cool to be an, uh, an incubator or accelerator these days. So I think on the upside, if it's a quality program, you can really, as an entrepreneur, gain a lot. The training, the insights, the mentoring can be amazing. It can be the experience that makes or breaks your success, right? But there are a lot of copycats out there. And like I said, I think that the vast majority of the incubators out there that are really, really good at the end of the day are a handful. So if you decide to go that route, be thoughtful, be, you know, do your homework, think about what you want out of it, uh, and understand that, um, you know, this is, a, it's important to make these, these correct choices, but it's fascinating to see how big the numbers are these days. And there is quite a bit of difference in terms of the quality. Some of them are just real estate plays. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're really good real estate plays. You know, you have number of desks, dollars per desk, you put it across the square footage and you're like, maybe I should start one of these. One thing that's interesting on the venture side that I find fascinating though is, you know, if you're coming from a good quality um, in, in incubator program, as, a, as an entrepreneur, as a founder, you almost now, as you're having that investor conversation, are, I think, in a better position to go, hey, not only do I need good money, I need smart money, right? And smart money means someone that understands your business model and can help you, you know, deliver on what you're trying to bring to the market. So more and more, we're seeing entrepreneurs um, that we work with really demand investors that have uh, operating uh, experience that's applicable. And a lot of that's coming from this great experience that they brought to the table um, as, as being graduates of some of these really good programs. I just want to emphasize something that Carrie just said, which is um, there is no right answer to like how you should raise money, and it's very different for every company. And if you think about like startups in general, they're an exercise in outliers. And so, uh, all the advice we're going to give today is kind of the best to the best of our knowledge, but it's very different in every different situation. And taking the time to be thoughtful about your particular business and your particular background and how what the best way for you to kind of go against the market is. Um, is super important. If we had this conversation in 2005 uh, about accelerators and we're like, someone's like, I have this money, why see, should I go take it? Everyone would have told them, like laughed at them because at the time it was just like such a crazy idea because it was so tainted early on. Mm -hmm. um, but if you were in the first two or three batches of YC, I think everyone would be really happy with that. And so um, being thoughtful and taking the time to understand all these dynamics is super important. Um, as a founder, fundraising becomes probably half your, your time um, and making sure the business is well capitalized is super important. Uh, and though um, it may not feel like it's something that's core to your business, it's hugely, hugely valuable. And mistakes early on in taking the money from the wrong people or setting up the money in the wrong capital structure like can have really hurtful downstream effects to your business. And so uh, it's important right now to get the right advisors around the company and to take the time to understand what decisions you're making. Yeah, I think, I think it's a great point uh, that Adam raises about how to best allocate your time, right? Entrepreneurs, your most precious resource is your time, and you just don't have enough of it. You're, you constantly run out of time, and unfortunately, going out, dialing for dollars, pounding the pavement, uh, takes an incredible amount of time, follow-up, research, um, you know, asking your friends for introductions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so let, let's... Um, 
let's sort of shift the conversation a little bit and make it more applicable to music startups. Um, Oftentimes, uh, in the past, uh, I would get introductions to potential investors, and the second they heard that I'm a music startup, they run for the hills. A lot of these guys don't even take the meetings, um, which is actually, by the way, not a bad thing. People not taking a meeting is actually an excellent way for you to quickly know not to waste your time there. Um, now, now let's let's uh, sort of turn it over to Larry and Adam here, who have done deals in the music space. Now, you guys are obviously willing to do the work. Won't make the macroscopic slash. I will not invest in the sandbox, um, and do take your time. So, let me ask you this: What is it about this space that scares the crap out of so many that interests you, you guys? Maybe, Larry, I'll start with you. Adam looks like he's chomping at the bit, though. <laughs> no, no, go, go nuts. Um, I think that, A, there's been a lot of money dumped into very inefficient companies, and many of whom have, have gone bankrupt over time, I mean, over a very long period of time. So I think there's just, you know, social's hot because companies raise a small amount of money and then get very big. You know, music is viewed as bad because uh, they've absorbed a huge amount of money, not create a lot of money. But I think the number one factor is fundamentally that people associate music with music licensing deals. And for startups, it's very difficult, uh, bordering on impossible, to get a licensing deal from the set of labels that's a win-win deal that doesn't require upfront capital. So I'm not going to hand the money allow the money that I'm handing you to just be handed to a third party for licensing. And that makes that kind of initial phase very difficult for startups. That makes it more of the realm of very strategic companies who want to make very large investments going after very large pies. But that said, there's so much value around the ecosystem that doesn't relate to this traditional model. And there's actually a lot of money to be made uh, from affiliate fees helping services, um, being lead gen to other services that you know have models in place, affiliate fees of selling music, uh, affiliate fees of selling tickets, other things. A lot of that can really add up. But I think people just you know, said, gee, music is bad. I don't want to look at it. But the fact is, it's a hugely broad ecosystem, and it occupies a huge amount of people's time. Uh, you know, the, the numbers around music listening just as leisure time are staggering. And you know you have uh, almost 20 hours uh, a month on average from, from a Pandora listener. I mean, these are huge amounts of time you know, relative to other media consumption as well. And um, you know, radio stations reaching, uh, Dial Global's reaching over 200 million listeners a month through their national radio network. So I think it's a very broad ecosystem. There's lots of exciting opportunities from the education, live uh, production, discovery, engagement, helping bands get paid. There's tons to be done around the band to fan connection, um, helping bands, helping fans connect. Um, so I just find when people love something and they engage with it a lot, you can figure out really exciting ways to get paid. And I, I hope that the, the music industry evolves and creates things like statutory licensing 
not only on the radio front, but also on music services. Uh, I have some great ways I'd love to sell music um, and to choose the features I want to choose, not have somebody say, you know, here's the 50 things you need to do because we think we know your users better than you do. I think the beauty of innovation is to focus on the user and deliver a great service. And whenever you can create constraints around that, you just have a big hashtag fail. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Sorry for ranting. I know. I, lo I love it. <laughs> <laughs> this is my favorite part of the, mu the music conversations. Everyone just starts ranting about it. No, um, I'll echo that. So uh, to start, the labels scare investors, and I think they scare a lot of people. Um, and it's because their business models are not necessarily aligned with you or enabling more openness. Um, because, and this is why I think we get so excited. So I think in general, um, media is going under, uh, the media business in general is going under, across this huge shift. And the shift is, um, in the old world, distribution was like a very interesting um, choke point. And so, because it was expensive to do distribution, so it made sense to have a label or a big newspaper, you know, be a part of, be a part of one of those things because it was expensive to go put the New York Times everywhere, but then you got distribution because the New York Times was paying for it. Um, same thing with music. Before you needed to get played on the radio and the way you got played on the radio is you were part of a label. But uh, as the world has changed with digital and is continuing to change, um, how bands and fans and how uh, in individuals in general connect with their audience fundamentally changes. Um, and I think what I love about what Larry said is that music is it's this very authentic experience where like people get really passionate and excited about it. When you have that, you're actually really able to build a relationship with an end artist. Um, and when you have that, there's really interesting ways to monetize. But I think that's why at least um, we get excited about kind of the media space in general is that um, as digital distribution continues to happen, it really changes the industry and that creates huge opportunities for new companies to come up and build into that model. Okay, so um, just to, to be clear, let's do the secret thumb ballot here. If you have to get uh, direct deals from the labels, will you two invest in those companies? I'm sorry. Oh, secret ballot. Secret, ballot. What's the secret thumb ballot? You don't even know what that is. That's all right. Okay. Would, would, would you do that deal? As I sit here today, no. But then and it turns out anytime I say something, we then later, like a month later, will be like, oh, we're going to think about it. And so... Um, <laughs> That's right. Well, this gentleman here has I, you on I have film. So. I, have visceral I have visceral beliefs, but then, you know, it's always important to rethink your visceral beliefs uh, over time. Got well, it. Look, I think that there's always new thinking. There's always new thinking coming in from all businesses. You know, how do you adapt to digital? How do you adapt to mobile? How do you adapt uh, to technology? And there's going to be interesting thinking and changes that occur. The question is, when does it really happen and how is it being done? You know, on the flip side, it's not any of our jobs to solve those problems because we look across a broad range of industry. I mean, we could invest in any kind of mobile app, any kind of service. There really isn't a constraint. Um, the music stuff could be very interesting on a licensed basis if those deals were available and we could look at them on an objective basis and say, look, this is a win-win deal. We succeed or fail together. This isn't, you know, it's not a heroin model. Here's you know, get addicted, and then once you're addicted, come back to talk to me, and I'll give you a sense of pricing. So with that, um, we've got about 10 minutes or so for questions. Uh, I've got a ton more, but, but let's rock it if you guys are ready. 
Jeff, I just wanted to ask you for clarification. Sure. When you say you need a direct license from the labels, which you do you mean? Oh, sorry. I meant entrepreneurs. So if you're a startup that requires direct license deals with the labels, would these guys as VCs make that investment? Great question. Go ahead. When you mentioned uh, uh, getting an introduction to speaking to one of you, and you have different styles about how you like to be approached. Larry, you mentioned perhaps, you know, at the conference you could talk or share an idea, whereas Adam, you said, don't do that, I don't like that. <laughs> and so, is, is there, uh, although you invest together in some, in some areas, do you, there's no real tried or true way. I, I guess you're all saying you, you have different styles. Well, I'm gonna jump in and say that. I think both of them are actually saying they're open to a quick introduction, I would imagine, but don't do the full-blown pitch, right? Be thoughtful about how you're leveraging the time. You know, Say something that will make you memorable if it's in an environment like this. It needs to be about 30 seconds to a minute max. You know, there, there are lots of conversations to be had. So do whatever you're saying, make sure it's memorable, and then the follow-up opportunity will present itself when you've done your due diligence, you know about the background of that investor, and you can customize your message, which is so important. This is something that so many early-stage entrepreneurs don't do well. They've got the solution, they've got the team, but the pitch becomes uh, kind of a canned pitch. And I swear to you, investors can smell it and they know it. And you need to take a step back, be thoughtful about who's in front of you, and create a conversation that they can relate to. People have different screens to try to avoid meetings because, again, <laughs> none of us want to be in meetings. Avoiding the bad ones is, is crucial, right, for time management. So Adam is saying get an intro from a trusted resource. That's a key screen among others. And I'm saying... I want to see the product and see it with my own eyes, not kind of hear the words because I'm hearing, you know, just right. a bunch of buzzwords flying by. And that, then I want to have a conversation after that. Yeah, so, and, I, and I just add, you know, LinkedIn is awesome. I, I, you know, I have nothing to do with the company, but I swear by this thing and, and use it all the time to get to people. Um, and as I mentioned before, one of the best resources are the portfolio companies. You know, as, as Carrie said, do the due diligence, do the research. It's oftentimes easier to get to the investment guys through the portfolio company. And because all these guys, they got, they're looking for hires all the time and, you know, they want to build relationships. Um, obviously, as, as, as we discussed earlier, human capital, uh, while it may be, um, you know, certainly easier to convince the, uh, the toughest investment committee, which is generally the person that shares your bed with you, that you're going to quit your job and, and actually focus on, uh, on, on your passion. Getting technical hires is probably one of the, the other toughest things to do. Um, and let me actually ask these guys real quickly, because I think this is important, and I know you guys, um, I, oftentimes I get this question, how do you find a technical hire? The answer is usually good luck. Um, but, but I think, um, you know, just from your, your perspectives, how important is it to have a technical you know, co-founder or somebody on the team? Are you guys okay with that product if it were built by an outsourced team um, you know, overseas, or is this so crucial as part of that initial team that you won't fund unless there is that technical team? I mean, it's really hard to outsource your innovation, and um, that's part of why I really want to see the product, because 
developing something that's really simple and really low latency and gives you a lot of joy is incredibly difficult. And it would be pretty rare for that to show up from an outside team. If it did show up from an outside team, then I'd want to figure out how to make that the inside team. Yeah, and I'll just say, so all investors are very different, but this is the reason that um, in the first, like, in the first meeting, normally, at least not till the end, I probably don't even want to see a product. I really want to talk about you and what motivates you. Um, but to kind of directly answer the question, um, it's, it's, it's really hard to be like, I'm going to invest in you because I'm not really investing in your product. Um, and, but we're investing in you, but it's only you, and you have to kind of figure out all the other pieces. Like, that's just a little bit harder. Um, and, and so it's nicer to have it. I think we've invested in one company without an outside uh, technical founder. Um, in the history of our fund, which is 108 or so companies. Um, but he, uh, the founder had built three or four ad tech companies before and had his first two hires already on uh, deck. So part of it really, it, at the end of the day, is demonstrating that it, if you don't have the technical expertise, you have the serial record of entrepreneurship. Um, but even at the angel and organized angel level, without a doubt, that's a almost an absolute requirement that we see uh, at the bank. Got it. We got... Um Hi, what negatives do you see in co-founder equity structure or possibly in even number of original co-founders that would make it an unattractive investment opportunity? I guess this is mainly for Adam and um, Larry, but anybody who obviously wants to take this. I think it's difficult. I think it's difficult to answer the question just because there's so many dynamics that go into it. And I think I just like to see it simple and make sense. So if you've got a lot of equity that's not inside of the company, that's always, you know, pretty negative. If you feel like there's imbalance, you know, there's a piece of pie and, you know, there's three musketeers and they each deserve, you know, an equal piece of the pie and that's the way it is, that's fine. But if it's one person, you know, and they have 10% of the pie and they think they really deserve 30 and that the other people don't add value, you haven't sorted that out, that's going to come out very rapidly. So I'd say just get it simple, make it make sense internally, and then that's the right place to move forward from. And the most solution you're ever going to take in the company is day one when you're founding the company. And so uh, I would say play the math forward because if you're going to raise money, you'll probably raise money three times and take 30 to 40% dilution each round on a good scenario. And so if in three years you're still grinding it out and you own 8% of the company, is that enough to keep you there? That'd be the question I ask. And as an investor, you know, that's what we have to kind of weigh every time because if you really want to go build big companies long term, people have to be incentivized for the long term. Again, I'll throw out a slightly different viewpoint on that, which is, um, you know, I think it's important to not just solely think about the economics of the deal. Uh, quite frankly, I know it sounds crazy, but hear me out for a second, which is startups are really freaking hard, right? You are destined to fail at, at the outset. Again, the 9 out of 10, I think it's actually 9.5 out of 10. So I think it's important to have your, your built-in support group that's part of the team. A couple of buddies of mine have gone out and they've been the sole founder of their company. And they often tell me it's lonely. It's lonely at the top, particularly when the fit hits the shan. And it's not, it's not actually an 
if the fit hits the shan, it's when the fit hits the shan. Because things will go sideways, they'll go down, and I think it's important to have that other person on your team that you could look to that's got an equal stake in the company, that is a that is a true stakeholder that cares, that says, well, wait a minute, actually that meeting wasn't so bad because of the following reasons. Oh, actually that meeting wasn't so great because we missed this issue. And so it's always really good to have, I think, that support infrastructure you know, just to throw out something. And, and quite frankly, at the outset, sure, if it's a 50-50 type of scenario, in my view, it's worth it. Okay, uh, we got maybe one more real quick. Hi, it's Ann Greenberg. I was really interested to hear about the negativity toward the convertible vehicle. I have a perspective of being up in the Bay Area here for a long time and moving down to Los Angeles, where pretty much convertible note is uh, how people start and finish every sentence at this point. But in looking at the legal costs involved, you, you mentioned that you felt it could be done uh, a regular price round for ten to 15000 I'd be really interested in knowing you know, how, how real that is, because I've gotten quite a lot of other feedback that it's more like 50K from either side, which means if you're doing a million dollars, that's 10% of your round right there. So if you could just speak to that briefly, I'd really appreciate it. I think the L.A. legal fees are a little bit different potentially. But, (laughs) (laughs) you know, we've done, we've done. Sorry, political correct answer. (laughs) We've done one, we've, I've done deals where I don't even use counsel. I just have company counsel if it's really small. And I think that was done for, well, it also depends on the shape of the company. I mean, the biggest expense is trying to, figure out, you know, what what's composing the nest. And if it's really complicated, it just takes more, you know, to get it figured out. But if it's really early, it's really simple, it's just not that big of a deal. I think that one we probably had 20K of total, 25K of total deal costs, and there was a lot of extra stuff that went on. But I think our typical Series A, it ends up being 25K, per side. So I think 50K is probably more typical, but it just depends on on the history of the company. And, and it's in our interest to keep that as low as possible. And some, some attorneys won't even charge up front. They, there's a lot of models where they'll take equity or do other things as well. Big time. That's right. It's harder. I think it's harder to do when it's really small. But also if things are super small, I think notes are okay as well. It's just when they get larger, you start looking at what's going to happen for the institutional money and the impact that's going to have on the founders, and it just feels like it's over, overly dilutive. I would also just uh, add to that, like, make sure you're working with lawyers who um, focus on startups. Um, they'll understand that there's lots of open documentation you can start with and then use that to be the base of the company. Um, if you're doing lots of weird, onerous things, then yeah, it's probably going to get more expensive, but if you're doing a really clean uh, deal. And so like, you should check out Series Seed, the Series Seed documents. Um, they were a project that Fenwick and West, us, and uh, Andreessen worked on a while back, probably 2006, um, based on some of our early term sheets. And you know, they're super clean, but enables us to do deals very quickly and very um, inexpensively for the founders because, you know, again, um, any money you spend now, we're insiders in the company, we're aligned with you. Um, so we love Gunderson, Oric, Fenwick & West, and others. Um, Cooley is good as well. But if you're working with people who do startup law, they, they'll be able to do it efficiently. Great. So I'm uh, getting the, the evil eye. So um, 
we, uh, first of all, we, we covered a lot of ground from lean, keeping lean with friends and family, making sure you focus on your intros, build long-term relationships, get the pitch down straight. Um, and there is value in the me uh, ecosystem. Um, these guys will stick around hopefully for a little while after the panel. Um, if you got more questions, I know we didn't hit everything, but thank you so much. A big round of applause for these guys. They were awesome.